I was telling my family last night when we were talking about the sermon. I said, um, you know, when you're in class and you're in a certain class, you can sort of listen at a certain level and pretty much get all that you need. And that level doesn't have to be a real high level of listening. And then when you're in other classes, you feel like I've got to listen at a very high level. And so it takes more work as the listener to listen at that level in order to gain what's being said. And today I'm trying to talk at a very high listening level. So you're going to have to lean in and you're going to have to avoid taking copious notes. Just listen. You could get a tape of it. If you hear anything that's worth listening, remembering, you can get a CD of it. But when I thought about trying to talk about forgiveness, there's so many little rabbit trails that you can try to to try to chase down about forgiveness. And really what I've realized in trying to put this sermon together, it really makes a better discussion. It would be healthier if we sat down and had a discussion about this. But so we're just going to have a one way discussion. All right. And so I'm going to discuss. And then when you get in your car, you'll say, well, I think he missed this. Or what did he mean by that? And that's fine. That's what I totally expect happening. So when you leave just fumes pouring out of your car about all these other issues that you wished I would address, I can't get to all of them. I'm just going to try to get to the ones that I think will offer some help for us when we as we move towards forgiveness. Let's pray for God's help first. Lord, we come to a very divine act when we talk about forgiveness. This is what we have placed all of our hope in, that you have forgiven us and not based on our performance. And then you look at us and you say, forgive one another. There are very few things that we could do that would display the character of God any greater than forgiving one another. Everyone in this room needs to exercise the discipline of forgiveness today. And so we pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would come and work in me, work in your word and work in your people. In Jesus name. Amen. If you were fighting a war, especially if you were invading another country, and the picture I had in mind was the D-Day or the Normandy invasion of France from Germany or from England, the, the first thing you would attempt to do is to establish a beachhead, sort of this what I would call a base of operations. So you, you conquered some amount of territory and then all of the supplies that you need to conquer more territory are going to pour in to this one base of operation. And it fuels your effort then to move out. And last week I talked when I was talking about forgiveness, I tried to establish what I'm calling a beachhead. What, what is our base of operation when we're trying to forgive one another? And that beachhead the, the base of our operation to forgive other people is the incredible and immeasurable and immense love of God and his forgiveness of us. That's what we have to understand. That's what we have to establish first. That's where we're always going to fall back to when we need a fresh supply in order to move out into a relationship where we have to extend forgiveness 
especially in the most difficult situations, you and I are going to need a supply, and that supply is going to come from Christ. And so I want to reestablish that if you just leave your finger or mark in or uh, some kind of mark in Matthew chapter 18 and turn with me to Ephesians chapter one. And I just want to really, by way of review, when we preached through this about a year ago, I'm just going to capture our attention here on this idea of establishing a base of operation for our forgiveness. Ephesians chapter one. Verse four and five, he chose us in him. This is God. God has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us. He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Now, before we get uptight about all the human questions that immediately come to mind when we talk about predestination, let's simply for a moment take a bath mentally in this idea of the mind bending love of God. It's nothing about the love of God is based on our performance. How could it be? His love began before we began. So his love was extended towards us before we began. So it's impossible for his love to be conditioned on something that we've been, that has happened. So when we're thinking about forgiveness towards other people, this becomes a model to follow. We're extending it out prior to the person's understanding or even desire for forgiveness. Ephesians chapter two, verse one. Again. Reiterating the same point, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you in which you once walked. Verse three. By nature, you were children or some of your texts may say objects of, of wrath. And then verse four, the first two words there you should circle in your Bible right now. But God, that's the huge turning point. We were objects or we were children of wrath. But God has done something for us. And it says in verse four, being rich in mercy because of the great love. You hear that? That's the base of operation because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. That's the gospel message. We were dead. And I think all of us can agree that it's impossible to love a dead person based on their performance. Can we not agree with that? It's very difficult to say, perform, dead person, and then I'll love you. The dead person doesn't perform. God's mercy is extended. It's coming towards the person who is dead before the dead person does anything at all. Ephesians chapter three, verse 17. Now, Paul has gotten into a prayer. And he says this in verse 17, Ephesians three, 17, Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded. What are we rooted and grounded in? We're rooted and grounded in the love of God. That's our base of operation. We've taken a moment here to look back and see 
how God has operated towards us. He's operated towards us in this incredible love. Even though we were dead, He's moving towards us. And now we have this base of operation, and that's going to be the fuel or the supply that God gives us now to move towards others. And he says this, I want you to be rooted and grounded in love in order that you may be strengthened. And notice what you're being strengthened to do. It's to understand or to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of Christ. You're being strengthened so that you might, in increasing measure, know more and more about the love of God so that you, in increasing measure, can offer more and more of God's love to other people, which is what's needed when you're forgiving someone else. Now, chapter 4, verse 1 is a turning point. Paul has established the beachhead and he says, I therefore... When something, when the word therefore, it's reflecting back. He said, now that you understand God's love, now that I've established the beachhead, therefore, I want you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, we're going to walk out towards other people in the same way that God has walked towards us. We're going to walk towards them in love. And what's one of the very first character traits that is displayed And that is the word patience in verse two, bearing with one another in love. So patience and bearing with one another, as I'm looking at these words, that's sort of like exhibit A for the Christian character. If God's really transformed your life, here's one way you can tell. Exhibit A is that you have patience and you're bearing one another. You're forgiving one another. This word patience is the same word that is used in Matthew 18, which you can turn back to now. This is what characteristic the king displays towards the servant. And really, this word is not the best English word, I don't think. I think the old King James version gets it better because in the Greek, it's a compound word. And in the old King James, it's a compound word. It's not patience. It's long suffering. That you would be long suffering with one another. The Greek word is macro So macro means long. You might think of macroeconomics. You're taking a long view of the economy. And so here we're taking a long and then thumia is temper. So you have a long temper. Which is no big surprise. We would describe a patient person as somebody who doesn't easily lose their composure. Somebody who doesn't quickly have a meltdown. The melting point of steel, the melting point of steel, in other words, when steel sort of loses its composure, is 2,500 degrees. So for a steel building, heat comes on. Heat comes on and it can stand still. It can bear the weight of that heat without losing its composure. What about mercury? Mercury has lost its composure at room temperature. 
And some of you know people like that. At room temperature, they just lose their composure. It's just like if you broke up open a thermometer, mercury just sort of runs out all over the place. And so somebody who isn't long-suffering, somebody who isn't patient, they lose their composure very quickly when the heat of pain comes on their life. I'm not trying to deny the difficulty of it. I'm just saying when we're trying to be patient, when we're trying to be long-suffering, what I mean by this is that you can bear the heat of an injury without revenge. When heat comes on, you can bear that heat without revenge. I'm not saying that there aren't consequences. I'm saying revenge. So you don't melt down. You don't lose your composure. Your inner joy is not displaced by the heat of things that are coming toward you that you're going to have to exercise forgiveness for. So our base of operation is the love of God. And when we have an increasing base, as we understand a wider and wider sphere, a a depth, a, a height of the love of God, as that increases, then we are able to be long suffering. Now, I want to make a couple of observations here. First, this kind of patience that I'm talking about here is active and not passive. Quite frequently, when you think of the word be patient, you think of it sort of as a a passiveness. And that's not at all what I believe the text is talking about. I think it's talking about something that you are doing actively. You are bearing something. So you are taking a very deliberate, thoughtful, willful, active effort in bearing somebody else's pain towards you in forgiving somebody. It's not as simple as this, which many of you have heard, and I'm afraid some of you have said, well, just forgive and forget. That is not what we're talking about here. It's not that simple. You know it's not that simple. You may have said it, and you may have heard it, but then you walk away and say, I'm just not able to do that. I guess there's something wrong with me. And that's not what we're talking about here. It's not something very simplistic. It's something that takes real thoughtful effort. And it may take you a very long time to work through some of the places of pain in your life. I think that's why Jesus says 70 times 7. You might have to extend it over and over and over again in one situation alone. The second thing I want to observe here is that forgiveness doesn't require a lack of consequences. Let me say that again. Forgiveness does not require a lack of consequences. If someone who worked for me was discovered to be stealing, I would do two things simultaneously. I would work hard to forgive the person. And I would work hard to fire the person. And you understand that. There's no real confusion of that. When you're working with a child, you have forgiven the child, but the child is going to bear some consequences for the action. We can go all the way through the Bible on many examples. Remember when Moses struck the rock and he wasn't supposed to strike the rock, he was supposed to speak to the rock. And what was the consequence of that action? He couldn't go into the land of Canaan. 
God forgave Moses, but there were consequences to his actions. So when we're talking about forgiveness, we're not necessarily saying there's just a total lack of consequences to somebody's action. And the third observation, and maybe uh, more of a warning, is that we need to be careful to pursue forgiveness to its very end. And I want to use this phrase. We need to pursue forgiveness to its death. You and I have to be certain that we're pursuing forgiveness to its death. Hebrews 12:15. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. The act of forgiveness requires you pulling out all the roots All the desires for revenge. All your bitterness has to be uprooted. Even though you're right to be angry, you have to uproot a desire for revenge and a desire for bitterness. If you don't, if you don't pull it out all the way down to its roots, You know this when you're trying to pull up a weed. When you pull a weed and you just get the top, it's not going to be long before it comes back. If you chop down a tree, even if you grind up the stump, if you don't get the roots, the tree begins to spring back. And here's what happens in anger or bitterness. It comes back in full bloom a lot of times. Does it not? You thought you'd put that aside and suddenly you've gotten into this discussion and it's as if that pain happened just a moment ago. Sometimes it leaks out, it kind of springs up, but a lot of times it has the full fury just as if it happened just a moment ago. So you and I, when we're thinking about bitterness and anger and frustration, we're going to have to pull these things out all the way to the death or else it spills out like an acid and what does the text say it defiles other people you've been in a situation like this it spills out and you may not have an intent for it to spill out on anybody else but this one person and it spills out on your children I was talking to a friend who's a forest ranger, and we were talking about forest fires and controlling a forest fire. And he said, you know, when you're controlling a forest fire that's primarily in very organic soil, the fire burns on top and the fire burns underground. Because there's all this organic soil that actually can keep the flame or the like coals going. So you may fight hard to fight this fire and you may put out all the flame that you see. He said, but the real difficult fire to put out is what's just moving underneath your feet. It's just like hot coals that just keep moving. And he said, Paul, we would dig wide trenches around it. And if we didn't put out that fire, it would jump a trench and suddenly you have a forest fire in a whole new area. And I said, well, how do you how do you combat that? He said, well, first of all, that kind of fire can take months to put out. I mean, as long as it has combustible material, it'll keep burning. And the second thing, the best way to put it out is to completely flood the field. 
so that every area is just soaked with water. And my concern for some of us is that we've simply put out the surface fire. But underneath you're smoldering. And every once in a while, a little puff of smoke comes out and you can see it. You, you, you've dealt with what's visual. You've kind of put on the plastic Christian smile. You know, you kind of feel like I've got to have the nice smile. It's got to be a certain length. And I smiled at him. But underneath, there's this roaring fire like hot coals. And we're going to have to dig that out. So I'm asking you this question for you to deal with is whether there's an area of pain in your life where you have been wronged. I'm not talking about you going to ask for forgiveness. I'm saying you're going to have to extend forgiveness. And that means you have been wronged. And that's created an area of pain in your life. And has that area been completely flooded out? Or are you, even out of sort of a sinister joy, keeping one little hot coal alive in that situation. Every once in a while, you just blow on that memory to keep it alive. And it just puffs up underground and it springs up sometime in full force. I I would meet with a high school student several years ago and he had a right to be angry at a situation that happened in his life. But he was like a smoldering fire. And every time you were around him, you were just afraid that if he snapped, he'd just cut your head off. And we were sitting at breakfast one day and I said, you know what? One day you're going to have to deal with this anger. You mean, I've gotten over it. I said, man, you're not over it. I'm over it. Okay. It was like this hot bed of coals that a lot of times you couldn't see it. But if you just got underneath the little surface, boom, it was there. I'm not saying he didn't have a right to feel hurt and to be angry, but he had to learn how to operate and forgive as the Lord forgave him. And so I spent a lot of time just trying to introduce him to the Lord, obviously. Let me give you some practical exercises toward forgiveness. I've stayed away from three steps or something. I'm just offering some observations. There's more. There may be better ideas out, but I'm just giving you my observations from this week. If you've come by my office or if you've lived in my family, I've asked you this question. What happens when you forgive? I mean, what what's sort of the transaction? What takes place when you say, I forgive? What's happening at that moment? What are you hoping to offer that person? And one of the common answers, a good answer is, is that you don't hold or count the pain against them. We might think of Second Corinthians five nineteen. God is reconciling the world to himself. In Christ, how is he reconciling the world? How is he bringing the relationship of the world back to himself in Christ by 
not counting men's sins against us. We could all stand up and cheer and say, praise the Lord, God is not counting my sin against me. That's the base of operation. I have $300 billion worth of sin, according to the parable, and He has forgiven all of it. He's just looked at me and said, okay, I forgive. That's what He's done. He hasn't said, well, you know, Paul, you need really need to shape up. And you know, you got this bad habit and you got to stop that. And as soon as those things kind of work out, I'm going to, you boy, I'm going to really start forgiving you. Nope. Even as I was living as an enemy to Christ, he came and said, Paul, I forgive you. And so he's not counting it against him. And when we're forgiving, one of the things that we're doing is we're not holding this pain that's been caused by this person, we're not going to hold that pain against them. So if someone's offended you and you've extended forgiveness, what you're saying is I'm not going to make you pay. I'm not going to hold you accountable for that. I'm not going to count that hurt or deficit against you, not hold you accountable. That's not the right way I want to say it. I'm not going to hold that against you. I'm not going to count that deficit against you. But when that but when you've done that, when you've forgiven somebody and said, I'm, I'm going to do all I can not to hold that against you. Does that offense is that offense At that point, just forgotten. Let's say we're as well-meaning as we can be. I have been hurt. And I'm extending forgiveness. I'm saying, you know what? I'm not going to count that against you. When I say that, do you just forget about the offense? And the answer is no. You don't. You don't, because you're holding the debt. Does that make sense? You're not going to make them pay, and it doesn't just go away. You hold it. You're owning that debt, and now you're going to bear that debt, and you're left with dealing with a deficit. You now have a deficit in your life. If I've Let's just say I've offended you and I've caused you a $1,000 emotional deficit or dent. You offer forgiveness. Who's holding the $1,000 dent? You are. You have an emotional deficit now that you said I'm willing to bear. I'm, I'm holding that right now. And what do I do about holding that? How do I pay it down? You don't stuff it. You don't stuff it behind the little Christian plastic smile and say, oh, gosh, I've, you know, I just don't think about that anymore. That's not how you deal with it. You don't make the other person pay if you're offering forgiveness. You pay the debt down. If you look at the example of the king, he forgives and then it says he released the servant. Verse 27 And the word forgive here means to send away or to let go of. And the word released figuratively means to let it die. 
And so the way you begin to pay down the pain, the rightful pain, the rightful anger you have in your life, the way you begin to pay it down and not make the other person pay for it is that you let it die. And this has a lot of applications for your family. It has a lot of applications in this church family right here. Because you've been offended. If you've been in the church for more than a month, maybe a year, somebody's already kind of stepped on your toes. Somebody's uh, snubbed you. Somebody has overlooked you. You've been hurt. You may have a right to feel that way. And so you and this family and your family and your other relationships, I want to offer these three exercises. How you're paying that thousand dollar emotional dent or debt down. The first thing that you have to do is to remember and reflect on God's love for us. You have to do that. That's Ephesians chapter three. I'm praying for you that you would have the strength to remember the increasing measure of the love of God. And so when that pain comes to mind, when that offense comes around and you have it in your mind, you then bring right alongside in your mind the forgiveness that you have found in Jesus. That's the first thing. That comes to mind. You may not be able to help it. You're reminded by it by a hundred different things. And when that comes to mind, you just bring right into the conversation the forgiveness that God has given you. The second thing is you fully acknowledge your pain, your hurt, and your anger before God. I think this is why the Psalms are probably particularly helpful for people in distress. Because the Psalms kind of just pour it out on there. And God can handle that. He can handle you pouring it out on Him. So you read through the Psalms, you'll find all kinds of emotions in there. Some that are frankly a little bit alarming. But the ones that you experience. So you've got to bring all of this pain and all of this hurt and all of this anger. And you've really got to unleash it. And you're going to unleash it before God. Not on to God. You're going to unleash it before God so that He can deal with it. And I think that is what's talk, what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 11:28. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened. That heavy burden means you're carrying freight. When I come to God, I'm carrying freight. And I have two compartments. One real big compartment. That's the freight of my own sin. I cannot carry this freight. So I'm bringing it to you. But I might be carrying the sin of someone else. Somebody else has done something to me and it's been sinful. And I'm trying to offer forgiveness, but I'm still carrying a freight, a load. And I cannot carry that load. So I'm going to bring it to Christ and say, you have asked me to carry this burden to you. What's the burden in forgiveness? The burden is, if we were honest, we would rather choke the person that's hurt us than carry the freight to God. Is that not true? You've hurt me. I'd like to choke you right now. That's, That's your immediate reaction. And the harder the hurt, the more you want to choke the person. And you feel like for that moment, that's bringing pleasure. And you're going to carry that freight 
to Christ. And I just think this is where it's important to pay close attention to the parable and notice the character of the king. The king is the one who's acting like a servant. You notice that? The king comes up and rightfully could extract the debt out of this one servant. But instead, he acts like a servant. And he owns the weight of that. He's like a servant. And he says, I'll carry that burden for you. But notice the action of the servant. He starts acting like a king. You notice that? Oh, you're my servant and you're going to pay. And if you don't, I'm going to choke it out of you. And he acts like he's the king, like he has the right to exact revenge on this other person. And that's how we feel sometimes. And so when we come before the Lord, we're going to fully acknowledge that in all of our lives, but especially in pain, we would prefer to act like a king. In pain, we would prefer to control the situation and make somebody do something this way. And by golly, they're going to pay me back for that. We would rather act like a king. And instead, we're going to say, no, I'm going to act like the king of kings. And that's like a servant. I'm going to bear the weight of it. I'm going to pay it down. And I'm going to pay it down by acknowledging what Christ has done for me and by bringing the freight of that pain to Christ, who's such a great example for us. The third thing is that we have to willfully, actively, this is the active, not passive part, we have to cut off the supply to the fire. I have a little candle in my office When it burns down below the little glass rim, if I had, you know, uh, no pain sensors in my hand, I could put my hand over the candle, right? Over the little glass part. And if I could leave it there long enough, what happens to the flame? It goes out. The oxygen supply gets cut off. Now, it's going to leave a scar, but the flame is going going to be gone. And this is how we're going to do that. One of the ways is we're not going to continue to bring it to mind. We're not going to relive it. We're not going to roll it over and over in our heads. This is the 70 times 7 principle. Every time it comes to memory, you just say, I've forgiven that. I'm not going to allow that to control my life. I'm not going to allow that to disturb or disrupt my inner joy. I've forgiven that. And you may not have to say it to the person again, but you may have to say it to your mind. I am bearing that. I'm not going to let that control my thinking. And for some, time, for some of us, that's just going to take one or two times. But for some situations, you may have to bear that the rest of your life. We're going to cut off the supply by not bringing it up in conversation. Have you ever been with a person whose gravitational pull was the pain in their life? Every time you got with them. If it was just more than passing and you just begin to sit and talk with them, 
It's like the gravitational pull. The conversation begins to pull back into this pain. And they blow on the pain and give it some life in the conversation. You may have noticed that. You could be working in the nursery. You could be working at the garage sale. And just somebody, they think they're well-meaning. Just a bright, small little conversation in the church. And they bring up a little painful incident where somebody has kind of snubbed them in the church. You know what they're doing? They're not forgiving. They're, they're giving that coal life. I'm continuing to hold that against the, that person. I'm going to make them pay somehow. And I'm keeping the fire alive until I figure out how I can spill it out on them. And no matter what they may say, they've not forgiven the person. They continue to give it life in their mind, and people continue to give it life in their conversation. That's why you need to have a conversation with Christ. The third thing is you're not going to take pleasure in the other person experiencing pain. Now, this may sound a little strange at first, but you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) He deserves it. I mean, if you knew what he had done, twice that much, I hope. I don't even have to be inflicting the pain. I can enjoy that you inflict the pain on the other person. Lewis, in the great chapter on forgiveness, and I implore you to read it from Mere Christianity because it's a critical statement. It really crystallizes a lot of thoughts. He says this, when you're taking pleasure in somebody else's who's hurt you, when you're taking pleasure in their pain, he says these are little marks or twists on the central inside part of your soul, which in the long run, turn you into a hellish creature. You see, especially you see this in the unmerciful servant. You, you see this, the, the, the unmerciful, you see it in your mind, the unmerciful servant goes and begins to choke the other person. It's a very violent act. You're kind of surprised about it in the parable. And, and even though for a moment that feels like a release, Like there's actually some pleasure in choking the other person or watching someone else choke the person who's hurt you. You're being changed. You're being twisted. You're being twisted into a hellish creature when that happens. Finally, Lewis says this, you're not going to you are going to wish they're good. When. You're when you've forgiven somebody, this is what you're going to do. I'm going to wish they're good. He says this, it does not mean feeling fond of them. I want to emphasize that. When you're wishing somebody's good, that doesn't mean I feel fond of that person. That's not forgiveness necessarily. You may not feel fond of that person ever again, but you can still wish they're good. It doesn't mean saying that they're nice when they are not. Do you hear that? When somebody has hurt you in some way, when they have sinned against you, you may not need to say they're nice when they're not. They might not ever be nice. But you can still wish 
their good. Wishing their good means hoping. I love the way Lewis says this, hoping that they may in this world or another one day be cured. That's what I'm hoping for. I don't have to have a fond feeling toward you. I don't have to think that you're nice, but I can wish you're good. And if you begin to truly forgive this way, slowly, little by little, not every pain, but most of your pain, debt begins to shrink. You've absorbed the thousand dollar dent. You've paid it down by coming to Christ, by telling Christ your hurts, and by not holding it against the other person in the way we've talked about. And you may live with scars, but you live in freedom. Because if you don't do it that way, and what I think the end of the parable is alluding to, if you're not willing to forgive in this way, you live in a prison. The end of the parable, verse 34. You're, you're tortured. Because the rest of your life, that situation controls you. What happened to you when you were a child? What happened to you when this person did that? That becomes the controlling factor. It's like your clay in its hands. And it puts their hands around you. That situation puts their hands around your soul. And it twists you. And it turns you into a hellish creature. And you live in torture, in prison, saying, I'm going to get him back. And so it blocks your relationship with God. The Lord's Prayer is something that we say frequently and we skip through a lot of the verses because we know it. But one of them is forgive us our debts. As we forgive our debtors. And that's found in Matthew chapter six. And then Christ, I don't know if it's a commentary on the prayer, but these are the next two verses after the prayer. The disciples teach us to pray. Here's a prayer. And then this is what he says in the next two verses. It's like he's saying, gosh, I want you to know when I said this, here's a real critical part of that prayer. Chapter six, verse 14. If you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But just let the weight of this verse sink in. If you do not forgive men their sins, your father will not forgive your sins. If you don't forgive, you live in a prison of your own making. Now, you may blame it on the other person, but you've decided I'm going to live in that prison. I'm going to continue to give pain life. And you block your relationship to God in a very frightening way. If you do forgive, if you if you do forgive, your life is a highway for the gospel. You could you can't get enough traffic on that highway because everybody across all cultures has experienced unfair pain in their life and they're watching you. And particularly the person who's created that pain in your life 
is watching you. And when you extend that kind of forgiveness, people begin to say, what's the source? I I can't conjure up that kind of forgiveness on my own. He must be getting a supply of some kind. Where's his beachhead? And you see what that opens up? A highway for the gospel. When you're forgiving, you're doing something very divine. And it points to the great forgiver. And, and I can say in the four years of the pa- being the pastor, I, I've watched some of you and know some of this lifelong pain that I've been trying to address here. Something unfairly has happened to you and you have a right to be angry about that. But me watching you work hard at forgiving, not bringing up in conversation, not giving it life, not living in it has been an enormous encouragement for me. Because I look at you and say, I want to tap into that source. I want to know where they're getting that from. And I know Christ. It's just that that taproot goes a little deeper than the one I'm currently experiencing. So thank you. It's a gift to the body when this kind of forgiveness is exercised in a family. And when people come in from outside these walls and they watch people who really have been snubbed. A little group has really ignored you and you've tried to get into it. You didn't get the phone call that everybody else got. And you continue to forgive. Those people want to know what that's like. But if you don't, that's like everybody else. So we, in our pain, We have an opportunity to be a highway for the gospel. But that's only going to happen if we have the source in our lives, and that's Jesus Christ.